It's a conquering by the word. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because this idea in Genesis chapter 128, if we were to really understand the heart of God from the beginning, is a reflection, Matthew 28, is a reflection of that same idea. So think about it carefully. Here we are in the perfect garden with the perfect couple in a world that did not know sin or death. Now think, God just said to Adam and Eve, conquer but conquer what? There weren't weeds. There was no sin. There were no animals that threatened harm. But God still says to subdue the creation. So think about it like this. God is the great king, and he's made man to be his vice regent, to rule over the creation with his authority God did make all things well. You can hear the resonance of that through Genesis chapters 1 and 2. With every day of creation, you hear God say what? It's good. This is good. Right, so there was nothing wrong with the creation. God made everything well. Everything was good, but it was still, catch this, vast and unexplored and full of both mysteries and treasures that he wanted man to discover. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the glory of kings to search them out. God is really saying in Genesis chapter 1, he's treating man as that vice regent, that, that king of a, an, an under king who is to take the creation and discover what God has hidden within it. He's to subdue it. He is to conquer it. Frankly, I think it has important idea and ramifications, this concept, for what we think about heaven, because I think our thought about heaven is that pretty much, since heaven is absolutely perfect and there is nothing wrong with it, that it's going to be kind of boring, because there's not much to do in heaven. There's no, nothing to conquer, nothing to, 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 nothing to, no bad animals to attack, just like in the garden, right? It's like, but, but look, that's not the way it was in the garden, it was actually an opportunity to subdue right there in the garden. Because in, in heaven, in the place where everything's put back to rights, everything is truly good, all will be well, but everything still has yet to be discovered and put to use. It has to be subjected to the purposes of God and man, his vice regent. But now the command has changed a little bit because now we do live in a world in which there is sin and hopelessness, in which the world is desperately marred. And so we hear Jesus restate this very idea, subdue, conquer, and he says that gives that idea of subduing and conquering in the concept of teaching. Teaching, and this is a great big idea for subduing, teaching to obey. You know, we think of subduing and conquering with, uh, with flashing swords and taking off the heads of our enemies. But the biggest enemy, and the hardest enemy to conquer, is actually the enemy within. And it's the enemy that's not conquered by brutality and force, but the enemy that is conquered by the truth. And so Jesus is here giving this very important 
command restating Genesis chapter 1 and saying we must conquer the world, but not by the sword, by the word of God. This is where really, in a sense, the crusades went very wrong. It was an attempt to try to do the work of God by the arm of flesh. But that's not what God is ex- exhorting us to do. That's not what Jesus is commanding us in, Genesis, in uh, Matthew chapter 28. He is exhorting us to take his word to the peoples. His word will accomplish the work and subdue the peoples before him. And it's really that that I want to spend the rest of this morning examining and investigating to find out exactly what that means, to remind us that we do have an overarching purpose that we must remember. We have a purpose in life. We have a mission as a church. And remember that this mission is not just for the people who go to other places. You know, we're in other places to people who are in New Zealand or in Japan or in Korea We are the other place. No, this is a command to us right here as God has called us. We are the missionaries. And so we need to know what it is that God's purpose is for us. Now, I wonder if someone is thinking, I thought that that the idea was to teach that God loves people and that people are to love him in return. So what's this idea about the priority of teaching obedience to Jesus commands Notice again in Matthew chapter 28 that Jesus says you are to teach them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. Now to me that seems just initially like a little bit of a strange command. Why would we go about in this world, let's just say right here in Ferndale because that's our mission field. Why are we to go around in Ferndale teaching Jesus commands? And that's what I want to be able to answer by the time that we get done with this message this morning. So we're going to be investigating this and asking to begin with, looking at Matthew chapter 28, what is the extent of our teaching? And it's pretty simple. We're supposed to teach what Jesus commanded and no exceptions. So that means all of his commands we are supposed to teach. Notice what it says here. You're to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, Jesus didn't just give a list of ten, as we have in Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, a list of ten commands. He gave commands. This is one of them. This is one of them. There are many commands that the Lord Jesus gave. This is a pretty tall task. But I want you to know that it's really important that we don't miss. And here's the reason why. I want you to think that if you were training someone, if you were teaching someone to drive, and you taught them uh, effectively how to press the gas pedal, how to apply the brake, how to yield at those yellow triangular signs, but you forgot to tell them that at those red octagonal signs you're supposed to stop, would they be a really effective driver? Well, it'd be dangerous. Um, They might blend in with the rest of the populace, but they'd be at least sort of dangerous. It wouldn't be effective because we miss just one, just one of the important things that have to be taught to drivers. Or or think about it this way. Let's say that you're teaching children in your kitchen. It, It is Mother's Day, so we can go here, right? 
So you're teaching children in your kitchen to make cookies, maybe the kind of cookies that Helen or Charlotte or Ruth make, and, um, and, and you've told them to put in the flour. Oh, dear, now I'm going to get in trouble if I try and make a list of ingredients. Anyway, you tell them to put in all the right ingredients, except one. You forgot the salt. How good are those cookies going to be? Well, they look about like cookies, and they might sort of have a texture like cookies, but they're not going to taste too good. And why? Because of one simple ingredient that was missed. And so it is with Jesus' commands. He's saying here in Matthew chapter 28, the extent of what we are to teach. This is the extent. How big is what we are supposed to teach? Well, we are supposed to teach all that Jesus commanded. Because any missing ingredient will tend to bring on uh, error, frankly, and even could lead to heresy. You've seen it happen where a truth gets, a, gets an emphasis that is far beyond what uh, Jesus would have taught. And, and the reason it gets out of balance is because the other commands were not brought into it. I've seen this. You've seen it probably, if you can think back in your history, where things have been done that were very imbalanced and actually can lead to great damage to people, to the people that you're trying to reach. Yes, that's because we aren't teaching all of Jesus' commands. In another way, it's called the whole counsel of God. This is teaching what God has to say. So the extent of our teaching, well, it's really simple. We're teaching all of Jesus' commands with no exceptions. Missing any commands can lead to distortion, to imbalance, and even to heresy. No one lives well without subjecting his or her life to all that Jesus has commanded. But it also is true that we are to teach no more than what Jesus commanded. We aren't to make up our own rules for the kingdom. We're actually heralds who announce, just simply announce what Jesus has already commanded. We're heralds who proclaim the freedom of following him in truth. So, so get this. You don't have the pressure of having to come up with the message. I don't have to come up with something to tell people. I have my message already given to me, and Jesus himself gave it to me. He said, don't miss any of it, and don't add to any of it. Don't make up anything else and try to bring it in and say, this is the word of God. I will tell you quite truthfully, and I was just having a conversation yesterday with someone who felt that things had been added to the message of the word of God. You know, that is one of the most damaging things we can do. It's actually one of the things that Jesus himself stood against most firmly in his ministry. Over and over and over, you hear the Lord Jesus addressing the Pharisees, and he is addressing them on the basis, on the, on the issue of their having added to what God said. In fact, you find one example of that in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus actually picks up from Isaiah chapter 29, and he quotes to them. He says, this people draws near to me with their mouth and with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he says this, they are teaching, get this, they are teaching as commandments, oh, that's what we're talking about, commandments. Yes, yes, that's right, only it's completely wrong. They were teaching as commandments the doctrines of men. And that's all the difference if we teach his commandments, the commandments of God, we cannot go wrong. If we teach his commandments, the doctrines of men, well, 
we'll have people drawing near with their lips, but far, far from God in their hearts. The trouble is that adding to what God said always results in less than he intended. Every time we add to what God said, we end up with less than he actually intended. Whenever we say more about God, about anything that we fall, uh, whenever we say more than God said about anything, we fall short of real righteousness because we fabricate a fictional statement of righteousness that is our own that we think we can achieve. We think we're being more righteous, but actually our righteousness is unrighteousness in God's sight. That's really what the Pharisees did and the religious leaders of Jesus' day and why he took them on over and over on this point. Because by adding their own standards of righteousness, what they actually did was reduce the righteousness of God. They kept themselves from experiencing true righteousness. So whatever we say about this in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, we have to understand that the extent of our teaching is the commands of Jesus, all that he has commanded. Anything outside of that or anything missing from that will result in heresy or imbalance. That's the extent of our teaching. The foundation of the teaching is built right into Matthew chapter 28 as well. And I want you to catch this. Notice that he says in the very opening statement in verse 18 on this commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the basis on which we would actually be able to do anything. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me. Not some authority, all authority. Now, again, about 30, maybe 35 years ago, I was working for a man in Chicago uh, who was a, a very successful real estate agent, um, but who volunteered his time for the ministry that I was working for. And um, he was both a very popular character on this ministry campus, and he was also, in one sense, a very powerful character. He was the vice president of the organization, he was on the board, and he was the president of the particular um, subset of the ministry that I was a part of. And he ended up asking me at one point in time to be his assistant. So I, I came and worked for him as his assistant. His name was Jim. And um, Jim would sometimes send me on missions to other people in the ministry. It was a pretty good-sized bunch of people, and um, there were directors over various aspects of this ministry. And uh, so he'd send me to go give a message to, maybe it was to Tom, or to Dwight, or I could list some other names of people that I could be messenger boy to. Now I want to ask you a question. I was about 22, maybe at the time, and I had the authority of, well, of a boiled egg. I didn't have a lot of authority there. I had no authority except one thing. Why could I speak with authority to people that actually did have authority inside that ministry? Because I didn't go in my name. I said, Jim would like this. And you know what? He was the vice president of the organization. He said, I want that? Yes. If I go and say, hey, um, I really, Tom, he was the head of our publications department. We had our own presses and stuff. Tom, I really want you to change page two 
of this document. Run along, boy. No purpose for you, right? But I say, Jim says, oh, um, well, we at least need to have a conversation before we say no, because Jim actually has the authority. Rob doesn't have any authority, but Jim had authority. Listen, Jesus has given us his authority. This is divine authority. We have been given by God the very authority of Jesus himself. All authority has been given to Jesus And Jesus gives us the authority to speak in his name through this command. He says, go and teach my commands. All authority has been given to Jesus. Jesus' authority really is our freedom to accomplish the work of God by the power of God. Now, we really need this authority when we're in a position of spiritual battle. I want you to think about, some of you will remember the names, or the name, the seven sons of Sceva. You remember the name, Seven Sons of Sceva in the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, there were some, some uh, men, they were exorcists, who uh, decided to try to take this authority of Jesus without a connection to Jesus. And so they uh, rebuked the evil spirit. And do you remember the results? Yeah, they fled out naked and wounded. All of them. All seven of them. Because the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt upon them and beat them up. And, they, and he said this. The evil spirit said this. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Hold on. Are you with me? They had no authority. And why had they no authority? Because they were not standing in the authority of Jesus. There's only one authority by which we can do this amazing mission, this purpose in life that we've been given here in Matthew chapter 28, and it's the authority of Jesus. Listen, this is very important. If we try to go do this on our own authority, we should hang up before we start. We're going to have less effect, less effect than me going to director's in this ministry and saying, Rob says. Rob has no authority at 22. But Jim, oh, he had some authority. And we have the God of the universe himself saying, you go in Jesus' name. It's a freedom. It's a joy. It's a beauty. All authority has been given to Jesus. And in his name, we go with authority. But the foundation is also found at the end of the commission And it's in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We think about Jesus as Emmanuel when we come to Christmas time. That he was born as the God who is with us, and that's very true. But Jesus does not stop being Emmanuel when he goes to the cross. He does not stop being Emmanuel when he ascends to heaven. Here, as Jesus stands on the threshold of heaven itself, ready to return, he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's really this promise that is the only hope of our success. And it was the only hope of the church forever. 
just like we're looking at Genesis chapter 1 and saying, look, it was always God's purpose for us to do the mission work. So we're saying it's always been the only way that we can ever have success. If you trace back to Exodus chapter 33, you'll remember that that has to do with the golden calf incident in which the people built this golden calf and worshipped it and fell down. And God was very displeased. In fact, that's kind of an understatement of a way to say it. He was angry with the people. And he made this statement to Moses following that incident. He said, I, God, will send an angel before you and I will drive out the people of the land, go up, but I will not go with you. And honestly, that sounds pretty generous to me. I mean, thinking about it, these people had just done the, 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 the one thing they were not to do. And so God says, I'll tell you what, I can't go, but I'll send an angel. And so I, I would expect that, that would be considered as a pretty nice negotiating point by Moses. And he might say, thank you, we don't deserve it, but I accept. But he didn't. Because he understood the foundation, the essential nature of the personal presence of God. And he said, listen to this in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. But God said, I'll send an angel. And he promised success. I'll send an angel. He'll drive the people out. Moses said, listen to it again. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not, catch this, in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Five times in that passage, in those two verses, five times your, it's your presence, it is your sight, it is your people. It's your going with us. It's your people. Five times, Moses says, you are the center. You are the foundation. And if you don't go, I'm not down for the job. And it's true when we come to the Great Commission. As daunting a task as taking on the land of Canaan. I will be with you. That's the foundation that Jesus gives us here in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. Behold, I am personally with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' presence is our assurance of victory. Jesus' authority, Jesus' presence, the one, the two things that assure our success as we take on a mission that is way bigger than any of us or all of us combined. I think it's this misunderstanding these premises that's really one of the greatest reasons why the mission of the church doesn't go forward effectively and why we don't carry on the mission with zeal that we've been given by God. I, I think that it's a tendency to misunderstand the difference between skill and obedience. We feel somehow that the Great Commission is out to recruit gifted people to do the work of the kingdom. Gifted people should do this work. Because we think that somehow we're the hinge for the success of the mission. Everything is on me. 
And bottom line, just to be honest, we're not sure we've got it. We're not sure we have enough to do the job. Well, our uncertainty is certainly well-founded. But it's, a ba- it's on the basis of a misunderstanding of the very foundation of the mission itself. Our mission isn't built on us and how successful or how gifted or how capable we are. Our mission is successful on how capable, how authoritative, and how present our God is who is with us. Again, thinking back to my working for Jim, it wasn't, my success wasn't built on personal charisma. It wasn't built on my personal abilities. It wasn't built on the basis of my authority. It was built on Jim's authority. I just had to do what Jim told me to do, and guess what? People listened because Jim had that authority. I wasn't effective because I was so convincing as a communicator. I wasn't effective because I had a new way to explain things that people suddenly could understand. I was effective because I represented the man who had the authority to give directions. I think sometimes we fail in the Great Commission right here because we don't understand that it's not on us or how skilled or charismatic or capable we are. It's on divine power, on the person of Jesus himself. And, th- and then I think that sometimes we fail because it's easy uh, to, we, we get trying to do the job in our own authority. We feel that we're out on a limb trying to push a message that we're trying to bring to the world when we're really just ambassadors of the king trying to proclaim his authoritative word, the good news, to captive enemies that he wants to set free. It's his message. It's his declaration of freedom. In Mark 9, one of my favorite stories in the entire New Testament, which we can't really talk about in depth this morning, but you might remember that in Mark chapter 9, the disciples were faced with a boy who had a demon, and when they tried to cast the demon out, they did not have the ability to do it. Jesus had just himself been up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. He came back down, and this was the situation that confronted them as the remaining nine disciples are working with with a boy who is in terrible condition. I would love to stop and just preach Mark 9. It's beautiful, but we won't this morning. But I just want you to understand that's the context. And the the issue, the, the thing that we want to see this morning is that they could not do the job. And I want to ask why. Why couldn't they do the work? Now think about it. It is a little more complicated than it first appears. These same disciples had already been out on mission work for the Lord Jesus and had done this very kind of thing. In fact, Jesus' commentary when they came back from that mission that was prior to this, prior to Mark 9, was, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Yeah, get, get this, we're talking big-time mission success right there. Are, are you with me? I mean, Jesus himself says, Satan fell like lightning from heaven. You guys are on point. But they come to this boy, and they can't deal with it. Why? And I want to suggest to you that they got separated from the authority of God and tried to do this like they'd done it before. It's kind of the, the problem with the magic abracadabra, we're going to be able to get this thing done. 
it's, it's waiting for the poof of smoke, the flash of light, and some miraculous result based on something that I did. But it's not on the basis of what I do. It's on the basis of Jesus' authority and his power. By the way, did Jesus have the authority over that demon? He sure did. And he shortly thereafter in Mark chapter 9 demonstrated it and cast the demon out. Sometimes we get confused because we think that we're all alone. And we don't do the mission because we feel like we're kind of like an employee in a big business and the boss is gone. And, and we're just trying to hold the fort until he gets back to try to keep everything from imploding while he's absent. But God isn't absent. Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. His promise really is far bigger than going with us everywhere. His promise is to go with us everywhere all the way to the end. Now, let me just ask you a question. Has that age ended? No. And since that age has not ended, neither has the promise. So is Jesus here with us now? Is Jesus going to go with us into our places of work, into our places of, of toil this week? Yes, because the age has not ended, therefore Jesus will go with us as we go to our mission. But we get to that feeling of being like, I think I'm just all alone. I'm out here doing it on my own. I feel so, so kind of just out on a limb and by myself and lonely. Oh, but Jesus promises this is the foundation. I am with you always. Now, that's the substance of what we're supposed to teach, and it's the foundation for teaching it effectively. But why? Why are we to teach Jesus' commands? I mean, shouldn't we just teach faith and belief and hope in heaven? Shouldn't we teach that God loves people and that people are to love him in return? And I want to show you four reasons why it matters that we teach Jesus' commands. Why teach obedience? Teaching obedience to Jesus' commands reveals the utter impossibility of doing what he says apart from his power. Let me say it again. Teaching obedience to Jesus' commands reveals the utter impossibility of doing what he says apart from his power. If you want to know some of Jesus' commands, and again, there are many, take a look at Matthew chapter 5. It's a really good place to go. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but Matthew chapter 5, and you find some amazing commands of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus would say in that Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said and he would comment on laws that people knew very well. They already knew these laws. But they were, in a sense, reductionists. Reductionists. They reduced God's laws to the minimum to make them seem more achievable. They added on the one hand to make them more achievable. And they reduced on the other to make them more achievable. In this case, they were reductionists. And so Jesus, for example, said... You have heard that it was said in the old time, you shall not murder. And they say, well, I haven't actually murdered anyone. But Jesus says, were you angry with your brother? Ooh. Or, or maybe 
For example, Jesus takes adultery and he says, um, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not commit adultery. And I think some of them probably patted themselves on the back and said, good deal, I'm there. I have not committed adultery. And Jesus said, oh, but did you ever look at a woman with lust? Oh, well, Jesus didn't multiply laws to deal with problems. He just drove God's laws to their heart. The commands are simple. They're not difficult to understand. Anyone could read Matthew chapter 5 and know exactly what Jesus intended. However, for all their simplicity, they're utterly impossible. We can't do them. Simple? Yes. Impossible? Yes. Utterly impossible for us. And that's one of the reasons why we teach Jesus' commands. Because what we're actually doing by teaching Jesus' commands is showing the impossibility of pleasing God on our own. That's the mission. That's the mission. We have a Savior we present. If people don't need any saving, they are not too interested in our rescue attempts. Try to rescue someone. I, I just took a course recently on CPR and first aid. Now, assume that the person, they have all these things that they tell you to do when you run into, a, a first, uh, when, into an incident that looks like it could have to do with um, a heart attack. And so uh, one of the things that you do, though, is that you are to check the person, some of you know this already, to see if they're breathing so they're passed out, they're non-communicative, and you're checking to see if they're breathing. Well, that's pretty important, um, because breathing is like the stuff of life, so you've got to make sure that they're breathing. But I want to ask, what happens if you start in, to, this gets pretty dramatic, I mean, you cut the person's shirt off, you go for the AED, you're slapping on the, the pads, and the very first thing you do after you get the shirt off is you're starting to do chest compressions, which is likely to break ribs. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's pretty intrusive, but... You do care about their life, right? So, okay, now let's assume that the person is actually conscious and is telling you, what are you doing? Stop. Don't do that. <laughs> right? It's like, don't, don't, no, this person has to know that they need saving before that, and in this case, the person's unconscious, and you're dealing with a person who just needs rescue from death. But so many times, I think we try to save people who are saying, well, stop, what are you doing? Because we're trying to tell them that they, you need Jesus. Really? Why? Could you just like bug off? Wait, God's law has been broken. And there's a consequence to breaking God's law. This is important to teach Jesus' commands because it reveals that we have a desperate need. We're as, as incapacitated, more incapacitated, than the person who's lying on the ground having a heart attack. Because actually the Bible says that we're dead, not just passed out. So we need to show people their deadness. That's what the law of God does. That's what the commands of God do. Jesus' commands deliberately drive us to desperation for him. So why do we teach obedience to Jesus' commands? To show people that they're utterly desperate for a savior. But, but we also teach obedience to Jesus' commands to show the character of the God that we're presenting to the world. 
without knowing who, who God is, how can we tell people to believe in him? Jesus' commands are really, get this, his commands are the revelation of his nature. Take the Sermon on the Mount again. What do you see in Jesus' commands? You don't just see impersonal impossibility, I can't do it. You see the portrait of the Son of God himself. So think about it. Who else could say, when looking into the fiery heart of the law of God, this is me? But when we look at God's commands, we see Jesus' purity, his humility, his faithfulness, and his absolute perfection in absolutely everything. We see the picture of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 5, just taking that as one example of Jesus' commands, is not just to drive us to desperation, it's to drive us to desperation for the God who meets every single one of those in perfection. Jesus himself. So teaching God's commands... Teaching obedience to God's commands demonstrates the character of our God who is holy and righteous and pure and true. But it also teaches us who we are in relation to God. Teaching obedience to God's commands, to Jesus' commands, reminds us who we are in relation to God the very nature of obedience. Because notice it's not just teaching his commands. We've been talking about teaching Jesus' commands, right? So we're looking at Matthew chapter 5 to see that Jesus has given a number of them, and that's just one of the places. Teaching commands could be a fairly philosophical thing. Oh yes, that is in fact what God said. But Jesus says, teach them to observe, to do them, to obey. Teach them to obey the commands. You know what that says? I am not the king. That's the very nature of my relationship to God. To obey a command by necessity presses us into the position of submission. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 28? Subdue, conquer. The first one to subdue. The first person who must be conquered is me. When I learn to obey Jesus' commands. I'm demonstrating my submission to God. I'm acknowledging that he has authority over everything in my life, that he can tell me what to do. Jesus' commands bring us to the place of submission. Why teach obedience? Teaching obedience to Jesus' commands puts us in the only place where we can fulfill the greatest commands. Now remember, we've been thinking about this question, why don't we just go out and teach that God loves people and that people are supposed to love God in return? And I want to show you, here, here we see a pinnacle of answer to that very question. God is so good that he will not allow his loved ones to do whatever they want. So he gives commands. He's so good that he provides barriers to protect and even measures out discipline to enforce those barriers. He is truly good, not just soft. You've all met lax parents, right? And the kids might say, oh, my mom is really nice, but she's not really a very good mom if she never enforces the commands. That's not good. It's soft, 
And it might even be pleasant for a while, but it's not good. God is not like that. God enforces his commands. And by doing that, he demonstrates his goodness to us. I've told you before about my boys wanting to play when they were little uh, out on North Star Road, which runs in front of my house. And so they, would, they came up with a game by which they'd run out to the center yellow line and touch the yellow line and come back. Now, it's technically a 35-mile-an-hour road, but it's a straight stretch. And people go much faster than 35. And children are small and difficult to see. And if you're uh, a heady teenage boy driving a fast car, you probably aren't even looking. They'd run out, touch the yellow line, come back, until I caught them. And when I caught them, what do you think I should do? Say, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. You know, we probably shouldn't play on the road. No, that's not what I did. Uh, I enforced my command with uh, a fair bit of zeal, which my boys still remember. But why? Because I'm a bad dad? No, it would have been a bad dad just to wring your hands and say, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, this isn't good, oh dear. No, 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 I enforce the command because I love them. Listen, God gives commands and enforces those commands because he loves us. And the more we understand how much he loves us, the more we love him. And the more we love him, the less burdensome his commands are. You heard that from 1 John in the scripture reading this morning. We keep his commands and we find out that in keeping them, they're not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? They're not burdensome because they're really reflections of God's love for us. He loves us so much that he will actually enforce obedience to his commands. God is love and any love that excludes him is more really just like a sophisticated form of selfishness. Jesus does command love, by the way. We've been talking about why don't we just teach love. God, Jesus does command love. And he reiterates the greatest commands that have been from the beginning. And Jesus captures all of the commands of the entire Old Testament in two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. But just to go and teach people you should love one another without the authority and without the presence And without the commands of Jesus, it's like encouraging children that it's really not a very fun game to play on the road. Well, no, it is a very fun game to play on the road. It's a lot of fun, and there's even some risk involved, which makes it more fun, right? No, we're teaching that God himself has commanded something. In Matthew chapter 22, the... um, uh, well, that's actually another place. Uh, in Love is Jesus' good command, but it's a love from God and a love for God that's the power for loving people. If you love me, Jesus says in, Matthew, in John chapter 14, verse 15, you will keep my commandments. It's kind of an amazing idea. Think about it. Pretty practical. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you do not keep my commandments reciprocally, what does that mean? Don't really love God. 
I, I think we were talking about this last night at our young adults group. And I think we want to get really complex about ways that we measure our love for God. Well, I mean, it's kind of this big idea. I don't know. I don't feel very loving toward God. Or maybe I'm not even sure I feel that God loves me very much. Have you kept his commands? Okay. If you keep his commands, you're demonstrating that you love him. It's so practical. It's, it's almost dispassionate feeling. It's kind of like, what? Really? That's it? Yeah, yeah. If we love him, we will keep his commands. So if you aren't sure how you're doing, or if you want to love him more, what do you do? Well, try keeping his commands. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew, in John chapter 14, 15, 1 John chapter 3, 4. Keep my commands. And so we don't just keep his commands, but we teach others to keep his commands. And by that, we're pressed to desperation for Jesus himself, for the authority of divine power, and for the God who can enable us to do what pleases him. And in that wonderful cycle, we find out how much God loves us. Sure enough, we're not not teaching that God loves people or that people should love God, but that, but that we are teaching it through the one authoritative way to get there. That's not just nice, soft talk that doesn't really mean anything. We teach that God loves people by showing them his commands. If we communicate that to our world, we can express the beauty of a God whose commands flow from his love. Well, then we're on the way to fulfilling the great commission. Jesus' commands are the way to know the love of God and to demonstrate that we love him in return. Now, as we bring everything to a close this morning, I just want to ask, can we put this right on the ground and say, great, okay, so we're supposed to teach Jesus' commands. We're supposed to be able to um, express what who God is through what he commands, but how do we do that? And I want to give you three specific ways that are built into our text this morning. How do we teach obedience to Jesus' commands? First off, we live his commands in our own lives. And you see that here in Matthew 28, in Jesus' command, make disciples. Make disciples, really, you could say, model Jesus. You are not going to be a very good disciple maker if you aren't a disciple. So check first. Am I a disciple? Am I actually modeling my life on Jesus? Am I living his command, commands in my own life? And then having made the commands of Jesus the very center of my personal life, then I'm at the place where I can teach other people to obey Jesus' commands. Jesus, uh, Paul said, uh, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. How do you imitate Jesus? Oh, you keep his commands. Again, it's pretty simple, right? How do you love God? Well, you keep his commands. How do you imitate Jesus? Well, you keep his commands. We have to be disciples before we can be disciple makers. And I want to say this, it's super practical to me at least. And that's this, if we're struggling with our purpose, if we're struggling with our mission, it might be helpful just to stop and say, what command of Jesus do I not really want to obey? 
just saying it might be useful. Flip the book of Matthew. Start reading the Gospels. And just ask, Lord Jesus, is there a command that I'm just really not wanting to obey? It might not even take inspiration, so to speak, to find that because you know that there's a command you don't want to obey. I know there's a command. It's like, well, that one and that one and that one are pretty good. This one, mm, not so much. And not just that I'm having real struggles with that or I don't feel like I'm a con- I don't want to do it. Not that one. You know, it's interesting that that's exactly what Jesus faced in Matthew chapter 19. And you'll remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, how can I be sure that I've got the kingdom of heaven that I'm going to get in? And, and Jesus said, well, get this, keep the commands. That's what he said. So he said, keep the commands. And the man said, which ones? You know what Jesus did? I found this fascinating. He listed off the second six of the Ten Commands. Not exactly in order, but pretty much he basically took the second six of the Ten Commands. You know where they're in the second six of the Ten Commands? They're all the commands that pertain to horizontal relationships. They're all the things that pertain to my love for my neighbor. In fact, he sums it up by saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is from Leviticus, but also is a good summary of the entire second six set of commands in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 20. That's the second set of six. There's ten commands total, four that have to do particularly with our relationship with God, six that have to do particularly with our relationship with... So Jesus lists off six, and he lists all six that pertain to the horizontal commands about what we're supposed to do with our neighbor. And you know what the man said when Jesus listed those six commands? All these I've kept from my youth up. Now, if I were in the Lord Jesus' shoes, I think I'd have stopped everything right there and say... Hold the phone. Wait a minute. You have not. And we know that he hadn't, right? Because now he had probably kept the reductionist version of those commands. He had not murdered. Jesus listed them off, literally listed every one of them off. You have not murdered. You have not committed adultery. Yeah, right, right, right. He listed off those commands. And the man's going, yep, 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 yep. But we know that he probably had been angry with his brother and he probably had looked lustfully on a woman. And right, right, right. So In the ultimate sense, he hadn't. But Jesus didn't catch him on that. He stopped. He didn't do that. You know what he said? (laughs) He went to one command that captured the man's heart. He said, okay, then why don't you just go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me? Oh, well, that's a command that I'm not really that interested in keeping. And the man went away sorrowful because he just really didn't want to do that one thing. By the way, we could spend the whole rest, of the, we could spend another sermon on Matthew chapter 19, but, but let me just say this. What Jesus essentially said by telling the man to sell everything and give it to the poor was the fulfillment of all six commands he just listed. He, he was saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And he was also saying something else. You know what else he was saying? You also didn't keep the first four commands. What's the very first command? Anyone remember the very first of the ten? You, you shall have no other gods before me. Is that right? You shall have no Oh. So how'd this man do on that score? Well, he had another God, and it was called money. So Jesus called him on all ten. 
by one simple question. And I wonder if he wants to do that with us. I wonder if he wants to say, so, you know, we're saying, why aren't we more effective as missionaries? We, oh, we buy the idea, Rob. We, we get it. We're missionaries. We're here in Ferndale, but we're missionaries. So um, why aren't we more effective? <sighs> Can I be really honest about me? I think it might have to do with this for me. I wonder if there's a command that Jesus is saying, Rob, you're not really wanting to do that command, are you? I wonder if he's saying that to you. I, I don't really, and you're saying, uh, you know, let's talk about the other commands. Let's talk about adultery and murder. And, and, and Jesus says, well, yes, but no. I would ask him, if we're to get really practical, just ask him, Father, Lord Jesus, is there a command that as I look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I find there that I just don't want to do? Start there. Start there. That's the way that we'll live his commands. That's the way that we'll make disciples. That's the way that we will model Jesus to the world. There's a second practical thing that we can do, and it's right here in our text. We not only are to make disciples but we're to identify with Jesus in public. This is what Jim helped us with several uh, Wednesdays ago, and it really is interesting because it has to do with baptizing them in the name of the Lord Jesus, of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in verse 19. We're not only to make disciples, but we're to baptize them. Now, to me, that seems a little bit of an interesting thing. It's this kind of funny symbol that we do. But, but understand that we, what we're doing in baptism is identifying with Jesus in a public setting. We're saying, I belong to Jesus, and it's worth doing this thing that's kind of different, especially in a 21st century context. It's like, whoa, I don't know. And it's like, yes, that's because you are identifying with the Lord Jesus himself. And it takes us back to the idea of acknowledging him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. We acknowledge Jesus. It's essential. It's core. It's, it's fundamental to everything about our connection with God. If we're unsure of the will of God, if we're unsure of his purpose for us, this is a very good place to start. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you probably could quote it with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not under your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and the promise. He will make your paths straight. He will direct your paths. He will, he will clear the way before you. Do you wonder what the will of God is for you? Here's a really good place to start. Are you identifying with Jesus in public? Am I identifying with Jesus in public? Am I actually doing the process of letting people know that I belong to someone? You know, I wear a ring all the time. And that ring testifies to something. You can wear lots of different kinds of rings, but my ring has a story behind it because it was given to me by this beautiful woman about 27 years ago. And you know what it says to anyone who wants to look at my left ring finger? It says I belong to somebody. I'm taken 
and I'm really happy to be taken. You know what? Our baptism, our identifying with Jesus is like flashing that ring all the time. It just says, I belong to somebody. And here's the great thing. When we identify with Jesus in public, when we flash our ring, you know what we're saying? You can too. You too can belong to somebody. You can identify with Jesus. You can know the beauty of being loved by your God. Baptize them, Jesus says. Acknowledge me. One final and simple command, way that we can fulfill the commands, is by explaining the surpassing value of life lived under Jesus. That's really the essence of what we've been talking about this morning. Jesus is not after us being legalists. A command keeper in Jesus' economy is not a person who perfunctorily keeps the law, but a person who knows the love of God through the commands of God and who loves God by keeping those commands. Let me say it again, because I think it's worth thinking about. We get confused about legalism, but let me say it again. A command keeper in Jesus' economy is not a person who perfunctorily keeps the law, but a person who knows the love of God through the commands of God and who loves God by keeping those commands. You remember the rich young man we just talked about who kept those laws like a list, but he missed the heart of God. He kept commands, sort of. He also failed at the commands, and Jesus called him on it because he didn't have his heart. Paul talks about his own conversion in these very terms. He lists all of his laurels, all the righteousnesses that he'd practiced before he came to know Jesus, all the ways he attempted to keep the commands of God. And he says, whatever gain I had in credits from keeping the law, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Follow, he's saying, I count everything all the righteousnesses that I had practiced before, all the keepings of the law that I had practiced before Jesus, I count as rubbish because I really just am about knowing Jesus. That I may count all things as lost, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. So, Paul, did you just chuck the commands then? Did you just say it doesn't matter anymore? I guess I can kind of do life on my own because I'm loved by Jesus and I love Jesus and. <laughs> not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and depends on faith. The commands press us to faith, to believing that God's divine power is enough to enable us us who are utterly incapable, us who are desperately in need, that this power is enough to help us keep the commands of God and so to experience in a very beautiful, amazing way the love of God and so to be able to present to other people a God whose love is manifested in his commands, whose nature is love itself. What a life. God 
who loves us so much that he gives us commands that fulfill us in the deepest ways and that unite us with him to do a really big job together. It's a foretaste of heaven. Teaching Jesus' commands is really not just about making people better. It's not about being cultural warriors. It's about making Jesus known. We're explaining through the commands of Jesus who Jesus is and our desperate need for his righteousness. All of us are teachers. All of us are responsible to fulfill the great commission. It is our purpose in life. But sometimes we forget. Sometimes we run through life and like that 20-something-year-old Rob years ago, get to the point of saying, life, my life purpose is, and we don't remember. Or maybe as a church that we say, our mission is, and we flip through brightly colored pamphlets and try and remember what it is. Jesus has told us. And it's right here. In Matthew chapter 28, our mission is to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them to observe all that he has commanded. In this way, we will win the world for Christ, hand in hand with the God who goes with us and in whose authority we proclaim every word. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that we come to a God who's revealed himself to us. What an amazing thing. You'd be God whether you'd revealed yourself or not, but you have revealed yourself. You've chosen to, to demonstrate your character and nature through the commands that you've given, and we're asking that you'd help us in these very practical ways to simply ask a few questions. Is there a command? Is there a command that I'm not so sure I really want to keep? Well, that's probably the one that you want us to start with. Is there a place where I'm uncertain about my connection to God? Well, it's a good time to remember that you go with us even to the end of the age. And so we're asking this morning that you would help us to walk out of here with a very clear understanding of our mission, but not just a philosophical or heady understanding of that mission, but a connection to the divine power to accomplish the mission for Jesus' sake. So we take this commission afresh. It's our mission, and we are the missionaries going with you to the ends of the age. In Jesus' name.